What's up, Disciple Makers? This is your host, Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. We've been working through each track session from our forum last year, and up next is TCM International Institute featuring Jordan Sheets. TCM exists to develop Christian leaders for significant service through higher learning so that every single nation will have effective leaders of disciple-making movements impacting their churches, cultures, and countries for Christ. So make sure to check out tcmi.org when you're done listening to this episode. All right, everybody, let's jump in and hear from Jordan Sheets. Enjoy. Martial arts has played a big role in my life, and the most significant aspect of it is that's how I came to faith in Jesus, is the instructor that I had, unbeknownst to me, was a new believer in that period of time. And as is often the case, I don't know why it kind of moves in this direction, but sometimes when people first come to faith, they are so on fire, they share the gospel with everyone. And then for some reason, it kind of tapers as time goes on and people are more careful when they share uh, the good news of Jesus with others because they're afraid of all sorts of different things. And um, in that period of time, Leo is his name, shared the gospel relentlessly with me. And over the years, uh, the Lord has opened all sorts of opportunities to share the gospel with other people because of doing martial arts. So I have uh, I have competed in uh, mainly in North America and in Europe. Uh, at really the, the highest levels, at least in what we call sport uh, karate. Uh, and so it's, it's opened all sorts of doors to share the gospel with people. And people, when you, when you kick and punch one another really hard, and then you go sit down in the locker room together afterwards, uh, the Lord opens up all sorts of opportunities to share the gospel with them. And, you know, probably martial arts is, you know, is not the best of worlds to be in, and yet the Lord uh, uses us in our various interests, our various areas of life to reach other people with the gospel all the time. One of the groups um, that I've worked out with over the years, we, we started as teenagers together competing against one another. We weren't even in the same school, started competing against one another, and um, as the years went on, we just started getting together. This is good 15, 20 years later. We started getting together on a Thursday morning at one of our friends' schools. And on Thursday morning, it was better than just about any tournament you could go to because it was all the number one guys in their weight division. And so when we would spend our hour and a half together, usually it was better competition than any of the tournaments we would be traveling to to compete against one another and have to pay to do on those mornings, but I would pray. I would just pray, God, please open any doors. Lead these guys to faith in you. Turn their hearts toward you. Every time as I go in looking for opportunities, and inevitably the door, the, the Lord would open the door of opportunity to share the gospel with guys in big and small ways. And we all know that that's usually how it goes, that the Lord gives all of these little things. And then he gives, you know, kind of the atomic witnessing opportunity where somebody will literally say something like this, please talk to me about Jesus. My life is in shambles. And uh, that has happened over and over. Well, this group, I would go and share 
And just pray, Lord, please open their hearts. At the beginning of this, not a single one of them were believers. And uh, it's amazing to me now, this was between 2004 and 2008, uh, that this was going on and go and work out with these guys and wasn't exactly sure what was going on. Well, one of them came to faith in Christ. I move overseas uh, and come back seven years later and another one of these guys who had come to faith, well, really, as it kind of worked itself out, a whole group of these guys end up turning to the Lord. And it, it's just one of those things, you know, we're speaking about prayer, and this morning we're, th- we're thinking about following Jesus's example in prayer. And it, it's just an expectancy as we persevere in prayer that God is actually going to answer those things. And granted, the answer is sometimes yes, But when you have been praying for something for four years and it doesn't happen, (laughs) you might think that the answer is no. But in reality, with time, the Lord is opening uh, a unique door of uh, in in people's lives. And so, anyway, that just kind of relates to that. Today, we're we're moving into um, Jesus's example in prayer, and we're going to be the first passage we're going to be looking at is in Matthew fourteen twenty two. To 23. So yesterday we, th- we looked at the issue of following Jesus in prayer and fasting, looking at his example as, where, as well as his clear teaching in relation to fasting. Uh, yesterday, um, in the later afternoon, we looked at the issue of Jesus's explicit teaching in relation to prayer. And now we're going to look in relation to Jesus's example Uh, examples of prayer. And all of this come in the context, in particular in the Gospel of Matthew, where we know where all of this is pushing. And it's pushing toward the end of the book, and it's pushing toward those final verses where Jesus gives explicitly what he is calling us to do, what he's calling his disciples to do. So in those final words, again, just to remind ourselves that the 11 come, one of them uh, betrayed Jesus, seemingly takes his own life uh, because he was so overwhelmed with guilt. The 11 come, and in that moment, they look to Jesus, and they are full of two things. It Actually, in Greek, it doesn't say some of them doubted. It says they, they doubted and they worshiped. And uh, it's not that they broke out into a round of holy, 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 you know, arm in arm, you know, hands held high, and came before Jesus. When it says they worshiped, they, they fell down before him. They came and they fell down before him. And the doubt is coming from the reality that Jesus' blood had been shed and that he had been falsely accused, he had been tortured, he had been hung on a cross. And the disciples are wondering, you know, what, is, what does this mean for us? Well, the reality is it did mean for many of them that they were going to have a life that looked a lot like that. Uh, We know that to be the case. Uh, Among this group, the first of them, James, the brother of John, is going to be the first of these guys that we know of who is going to give his life on behalf of, of, uh, as a witness to following the Lord. James becomes the first one. It's kind of interesting because James... Uh, is the first, and John is the last of them alive. John writes his gospel in his old days, looking back as one who his literal brother had given his life on behalf of the Lord. So they come in this situation, and, uh, 
they, they doubt and they, they worship at the same time. And then Jesus speaks to that doubt. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, be confident as you, uh, as, as you look to me in this moment. Be confident because I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Go, therefore, because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, having this confidence, go, therefore, and make disciples. Key uh, verb, the finite verb in this section that, that everything is dependent on is make disciples. Active. Make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. First aspect of making disciples is going. If you want to reach new people, you have to go to them. Don't expect them to come to you. Go to them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is a key aspect. Gospel of Matthew. Baptism is not dunking people in the water. We don't look, you know, for people to be close to water and tackle them into the water as though there's some sort of magical thing that happens in that context. It's a clear expression of repentance. Repentance drives out of the Old Testament in this idea of shuv, Return. This is what the prophets are saying on a regular basis. Return to the Lord. So shuv in the Old Testament is equivalent to metanoeo in the, in the New Testament. To repent. This means to turn away from these things, but really to return to God. Most basic definition of sin is living in a way contrary to how we have been created. So then to return to the Lord means to turn away from these things that are contrary to how we have been created and return to the Creator, baptizing them. Clear expression of turning to the Lord. And then this last part, and teach them to be obedient to as much as I have commanded you. He doesn't say some. As much as I have commanded you, this is the call of what we are to be obedient to and what we are to teach others to be obedient to. It's not just to know it, it's to know it and to put it into action. Jesus has already given these sort of words. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. He doesn't say then, then you will have no storms, there will be no problems in the midst of life, and of course your house is going to be standing because it's easy. No, the winds beat against the house, the, the, the rain beats against the house, the rivers come, and yet the house is still standing because it's been grounded on the rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Same storms come, except that house does not stand because the foundation is bad. So Jesus has already, he's already been pushing this direction, and now he's saying it again in this final command, and then he gives this final reassurance, and know that I'm with you always, or and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Key statement goes all throughout Scripture. When God gives the calling, it's not about you, it's about the one who is with you. Period. When God gives the calling, it is about the one who is calling you. He is the one who is able, and, and we probably should say, not just able, he does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And so part of these, prayer and fasting, are a part of these things that he says when. Almsgiving is also a when. When you do this. Prayer, when you do this. Fasting, when you do this. And we turn here, this is Matthew 14, to 23. This is the first place, just a clear example of prayer. 
So uh, just a short couple of verses, but the context helps to unfold the significance of this. So immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead and to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up uh, the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And so in this third mention of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew in 1422 to 23, Jesus has just miraculously fed about 5,000 men, not including the women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish. Obviously, very miraculous moment. He's demonstrating his dependence on the Lord, even in giving thanks for and breaking the bread, that God is able to do more than any of us think. However, even this situation unfolded in, greater, in a greater context where Jesus was trying to spend some time alone with his disciples after the news of John the Baptist's execution. So if we go back and we see the, the opening part of the chapter is in relation to what happened surrounding John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was related to Jesus his responsibility was to come in, make the paths straight, call people to repentance. He's the one dunking people in water to show this, this, um, this change of direction. And Jesus hears about this, and he is seemingly seeking time to be alone. And so it's out of this, uh, out, it was out of compassion that Jesus miraculously healed the sick and fed these huge crowds of people. As soon as the sick were healed and the crowds were fed, Jesus forced his disciples to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side of the lake, giving him time to send away the crowds. And the word is really strong there. He, he actually forces them. He forces the disciples to go away. And we, we see that there, there's something significant unfolding in this moment. So Jesus is sad. John has been beheaded. I mean, that, that is terrible. John has been beheaded. He tries to get away. The crowds flood him. So he's overwhelmed with sadness. Now he's exhausted. He's been healing people. This whole miraculous thing has unfolded where he feeds thousands of people. And after Jesus had sent away the crowds, he went up on the nearby mountain and prayed by himself late in the evening. Jesus was not only doing what he had taught his disciples to do, to pray secret in secret to his heavenly Father. This goes all the way back to Matthew 6, verse 6. So thinking about the teaching, now we see Jesus actually goes by himself. He forces his disciples to go away so that he can pray in secret. But he was also dealing with the grief in relation to John's execution and the busyness of healing and feeding the thousands, all of which becomes an example to his disciples of how to deal with similar circumstances. This time of prayer and related delay of departure is also the background to the following section where Jesus walks on water to catch up with the disciples in early hours of the morning. Likewise, and even more so, Jesus' disciples should respond to grief and tiredness from service through extended times of prayer, refreshing, and even preparing for whatever is next. 
And so as we look at this example, and I know that we're, we're a group of people who are working consistently in the real world, we're working among churches, we're working among uh, you know, just the people who are living everyday life. Here's the, the reality of serving the Lord. Service is service. Uh, you don't always feel awesome. Tragedy strikes. It, it's not always your best day. It's not always your best week, your best year. Sometimes my wife and I say it's been a pretty rough decade. And you have to think through what that, what that means and how we're going to go about uh, kind of going deep in this moment. And when we look to Jesus, we see that even the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's sad. He's tired. What does he do in these moments? What is it that he is looking to, to become refreshed, to gain strength, to be able to find the ability to move on? And what we see is that Jesus, he pushes the disciples away. He dismisses the thousands of people and then he goes up and he spends time. And, and when we think about this, this is when he goes out and he starts to walk on the water, this is probably about three or four in the morning. So in the Middle East, we're, we're working on a pretty consistent clock of about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is light. Jesus is dismissing people while it's still light and he goes up and he prays on this mountain, presumably for hours. That it's in that moment that he is up with the Lord. As we look to Jesus in this particular example, we as people who are serving in this real world with real tragedy, we need these types of times that we just go and we're alone with the Lord. Over the years, I've been in service, in full-time service, in one form or another for over 25 years now. I have been in really, really terrible circumstances. And I, I could go and give a catalog of those things. Some of those things are in relation to the ministry. I remember one morning I showed up at church and I was tired beyond belief. It had been a busy last period of time had spoken the previous morning, the previous evening. I came in, I was just hoping to just kind of spend some time alone with the Lord. And Mondays are slow in churches, and I got a, a doorbell ring on, at, the, at the church. I go to the front door, there's a lady that I have never seen before, and she said, hey, um, I'm coming here. My daughter is Angela, and I think several of her kids go to your guys' youth group here. She was killed last night, and I have no idea what I'm going to do. The father had committed suicide multiple years before that. The mom, sadly, was walking home from a bar at 11.30 at night, just up the street from the church. She lived just around the corner. And I go with the grandmother, of course. I mean, what are you going to do? You need to help. Go over with the grandmother to the house, their house. There's trash everywhere inside the house. The kids have no beds. It's an absolute dump. 
I mean, it is terrible. All I wanted to do in that moment was run away, but there was no opportunity to do that. Of course, the situation subsides. And what's the answer? How do you refresh after that? No amount of watching Netflix is going to help you recover from those sorts of situations. What we need is time with the Lord. We need hours with the Lord. And so what I've found is oftentimes, uh, I, I alluded to this yesterday for those who were here, but we need these moments where we're able to, to do what I call praying ourselves empty. And that is where we don't just simply have 10 or 15 minutes or maybe even a half an hour or 45 minutes, but where we go and tell there's nothing more that we're going to express before the king. And finally, this moment of quiet peace and silence comes before the Lord. And in, in Hebrew, of course, we would call this just his shalom. This, this peace of this place of rest where there is a sense that I've brought all of those things. And at times, this takes hours. And I just want to say, if Jesus was praying and he starts, he's walking out on the water and it's three or four in the morning, that means he's been praying for quite some time. If he needs times like that, how much more so do we? Disciple Makers Podcast listeners, I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Next example here in Matthew 19, 13 to 15. The, uh, then the little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and he went on his way. The fourth mention of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew is here in 1913 to 15. And it comes after a discussion emphasizing the gravity of marriage. This is the key question of the time. Well, what about marriage? You know, what about the issue of divorce? If we think this is a new thing, it's not new. Uh, you know, all of the issues that we're facing in our society, they really are cyclical. They come around. I, I, you know, we talk about progressive and all of these sorts of things. I, I tend to think it's regressive. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a lot new. We, we see cycles of culture over and over and over again, and we come back and we think, oh, we've got something new on this. We don't have new things on this. Jesus is addressing the issue in this particular period of time. 
And he's speaking of the gravity of marriage, a unique relationship between a man and a woman based in God's creational design. This is going all the way back to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Jesus is literally quoting from Genesis 1 and 2 to answer these questions. That's how he's answering the issue of divorce. He's saying it. It's not me saying it. Jesus is saying it. He's quoting these verses. In this broader context, children were being brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. Likely, the parents were bringing their children to Jesus for a prayerful blessing of their children. For whatever reason, the disciples thought this was not appropriate and rebuked the children as they tried to come near to Jesus. And we think about this, James and John, uh, we usually think John is likely a teenager, So when we think about the calling of the disciples, normally we understand that John is somewhere in those teenage years, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that era. Of course, school as we think about it, uh, it seems to be within the context of Jewish society. Yes, they did have school. They did even read. Uh, Contrary to common thought, we know that this is something that is going on, especially in Jewish circles in this period of time. John is a young man himself, so, you know, it's kind of weird to think about, get the children away! (laughs) And Jesus saw what was happening and commanded the disciples not to hinder the children from coming to him, making it clear that the kingdom of the heavens is for these children and all those who are like them. That is to say, all who respond without reserve to God. And we see this among children. When they hear the gospel, when they hear uh, things in relation to the Lord, they respond in a way that is just totally unbridled. They, they, they could care less what anybody thinks about them, and there's just this absolute joy in hearing things about the Lord. There, there is a, 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 a childlike way that they respond. Of course, that's where the expression comes from. And then he, Jesus is really going to the point and he's saying, no, it's, it is for these children, but it's, it's also for anybody who will respond like them. And, you know, just to stop here for a moment, sometimes we think in very intellectual circles that that means that people are not going to respond to the gospel because they're, they're too smart to do it. And I can say time and again, being in some of the most elite contexts, in academic study, it is so surprising to me to see people when you talk to them, when you share with them the good news of Jesus, the sort of response that they have that is very much childlike. And it's beautiful because it's actually hitting at the deepest issues in the midst of their life. And sometimes we don't think it's gonna happen. Even Mike and I were talking about this and he's told me some stories. And it's just this reality. You think in certain contexts, people are not going to respond to this. And so you, you weigh it within you. Oh, I don't know if I can say this. And then all of a sudden you say it and they're like, hey, can I invite a whole bunch of other people to this as well too? I, I, you know, I, it's not just me that wants to hear about this. I know a whole group of people who would love to hear about this. So with this command and clarification, Jesus laid his hands on the children and presumably prayed for them and went on his way. Likewise, Jesus' disciples should not shy away 
from or even hinder laying their hands on and praying for children or anyone for that matter who receives the good news of the kingdom of heaven like them. And I just think that, you know, when we see this particular example, when we think about prayer, we should be praying for children. We sh this should actually be a part of the ministry that we do. We see it here modeled in our Lord. We should be doing this on a regular basis. Uh, there was a study, this was probably 25 years ago or so, or so, Leadership Magazine, just to kind of throw out some statistics. They asked uh, a, a, a group, a large group of pastors to like, uh, uh, you know, kind of clock in the course of a week how much time on average. So these are pastors, these are leaders. Uh, how much time in a normal week they were spending in prayer. And then you think about this in relation to just something as basic as praying for kids. Uh, you know, something where some of us in our homes, we could do that on a regular basis, certainly in the context of church. Um, greater families with grandchildren, all of these sorts of things. The average pastor was spending something less than 10 minutes a week in prayer. That is crazy. So... Getting back in here, looking at this example, so thinking, praying for children. So the first one, dealing with issues of grief, restoring after busy times of ministry, all of those sorts of things. Second, in relation to children. Third example, Matthew 21, 12 to 22. I absolutely love this section. Uh, Jesus then entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what, they, what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing at all on it but leaves. Then he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive or will receive. So just after Jesus triumphantly entered uh, into Jerusalem with the people uh, shouting, Hosanna, uh, and that, oh, oh, this is from Hebrew, Hoshana, Hoshana, save, please, save, deliver, Hoshana, uh, to the son of David, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, save, please, in the highest. The fifth and sixth mentions of prayer in the gospel of Matthew in 21, uh, 12 to 22 occur. With this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and these shouts from, these, uh, from those following him into the city for salvation, Jesus entered the temple and threw out the ones selling and buying stuff. 
And just, uh, you have to stop there for just a second. The reason why people, there's this whole business that is there is because the people are actually coming unprepared to the temple. Why do you go to the temple? What was the context? You go to the temple because you are going to make an offering there. This was the center of worship at this point. You should show up ready to do what needs to be done. So there's this relationship in the sense that the people should have been prepared. They should have been bringing their own offerings in the context of the temple. And yet at the same time, there were plenty of people who were willing to capitalize on the people's unpreparedness. So they show up and Jesus is... is, um, He entered the temple and he threw out uh, those selling and buying stuff, flipped over the money changers' tables, flipped over the chairs and those selling doves, or flipped over the chairs of those selling doves, and he rebuked them all, quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. They both say the same thing. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a cave of robbers. And we should just stop there as leaders. Uh, Central place of worship should be significantly a place of prayer. Uh, David Roadcup, who Mike and David wrote uh, a prayer book that we are, I think we're, are we still offering that today? Um, uh, uh, David was just talking about statistically how much time is taken up in our gathered worship together in relation to prayer. He just kind of got out a stopwatch and he found out that it was like 2.4% of the time together was spent in prayer. Jesus is looking and saying in this central place of of worship that it was supposed to be a place of prayer and instead he's looking and seeing it's become a place of commerce. So as we look at this, Jesus, Jesus does seem to be teaching at this point. He's giving a rebuke and he's saying in the place of worship, prayer should be a priority. God's house, his temple, was never meant to be a place of commerce, but a house of prayer to our Heavenly Father. Part of Jesus' answer to the people's shouts for salvation was to clear the temple of its greedy business. Part of his deliverance was to make it a place that it should have been and call for a return to prayer. The other part of Jesus' answer unfolded in this chaotic environment as the blind and crippled came to Jesus in the temple nonetheless, and he healed them. The chief priests and scribes were amazed at what was happening, but in a very negative way, as Jesus was throwing people out, flipping over tables and chairs, healing the blind and crippled. Blind and crippled people weren't even supposed to be in the temple. How dare Jesus defiled the place by letting these people in, and instead Jesus is expressing God's love and care for people in that exact context. And you just have to envision this. A group of boys watching a man throwing over tables. And you can just, I, I mean, I, had, uh, I have three boys. They're older now. But I can just imagine them looking at, you know, having been in the temple before and they're watching people sell stuff and it's kind of weird and the adults are doing strange things and maybe a little bit boring and they come in and on this day, there's a wild man running through the place, flipping over tables. You can almost, I mean, they literally are cheering. They are shouting, you know, Hosanna, Hoshana. And it's, it's like they're saying, this is awesome. As he flips these things over, 
and a group of boys who thought this was awesome were shouting, uh, again, save please to the son of David. And so although the chief priests and Pharisees wanted Jesus to, rebu re to rebuke the boys for what they were saying, Jesus rebukes them instead from Psalm 8.3, confirming that it was appropriate for the boys to be shouting praise to him as the son of David. And so with this sharp rebuke still ringing in their ears, Jesus left them uh, behind and went outside the city to Bethany to spend the night. So just thinking through this section, place of worship should be a place of prayer. This should be a significant aspect of what we are doing. So as we collectively have the responsibility of leading in our church context, we should actually be thinking, how do we create this context so that prayer is a significant portion of what we are doing? This is actually what Jesus is teaching. And by turning over tables and these sort of things, he's aggressively trying to create the opportunity for this again to be what happens, at least in the context of the temple. Early the following morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. There was a fig tree along the way, but as he approached it, he could see that there, were only, there was only foliage and nothing to eat. Jesus' surprising response to the fig tree's lack of fruit was to curse it with, the perpetual, with perpetual fruitlessness, something that was confirmed by the fact that it instantaneously withered. And although the disciples had seen Jesus do many miraculous things, including healing the blind and crippled the previous day in the temple, they were shocked as they witnessed the fig, uh, fig tree's instantaneous response to Jesus' words and could not help but question how uh, that had just happened. Jesus' response demonstrates that the whole incident was about much more than his hunger. That seems to be why all of this unfolds. Um, about his hunger, dissatisfaction, and cursing of the fig tree. It was an example to the disciples of what faith without doubt can do. The examples of withering of the fig tree and exponentially greater moving a mountain all point to what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. And all things, as much as you might ask in prayer, believing you will receive. In other words, he wanted to teach his disciples about praying to their heavenly father with expectant, unwavering faith. And you have to remember in context, this doesn't mean, uh, you know, give me all of my worldly desires. Jesus is already taught. He's given a model prayer. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as, is, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And we go through that whole prayer. And so Jesus is giving this and he's saying, pray in an unwavering way, with an unwavering faith in relation to really big things. Hey, I want to interrupt this episode real quick because I want to give a shout out to four of our key partners who will be leading track sessions at the National Disciple Making Forum coming up in Nashville, October 5th and 6th. Check out Awana for information on family discipleship at awana.org. Take a look at Mercy Multiplied for discipling men and women who are hurting and struggling. Their website is mercymultiplied.com. 
Do you find yourself wanting to help in transitioning your church to a disciple-making focus? Then go to NavigatorsChurchMinistries.com for more resources. And lastly, should you need help with sustainable discipleship models, head on over to SustainableDiscipleship.com. I encourage you to join one of the track sessions that these organizations will lead at our forum. We want to thank Awana, Mercy Multiplied, Navigators Church Ministries, and Sustainable Discipleship for their support. All right, let's get back to the episode. And in these further mentions of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, the uncompromising centrality of prayer and the worship of God's people and the importance of praying to our Heavenly Father with expectant, unwavering faith are both highlighted. God's house should be a place of prayer, not for greedy commerce, praying on the unprepared. Further unwavering faith is at the heart of prayer that will receive. We're just going to skip over this other than to say just briefly, when it comes to Matthew 24, 20 to 22, this is the signs of both the end uh, of seemingly the temple, but also the signs of the Lord's return. And they're blurred together in relation to one another. And Jesus is speaking in relation to both of them. And the example is, as he says, pray that this time of distress would not be as terrible as it could be. And he just gives the example. It's a good thing to pray. So even in the midst of our pandemic, the Lord is giving an example of this sort of prayer. The whole point, uh, one of my specialties is apocalyptic literature. So book of Daniel, book of Revelation. I've got a book out there that would probably be very boring in the context of canonical or the concept of canonical intertextuality in the book of Daniel. I make about $30 a year uh, on it in my... uh, It's enough to take, you know, Rachel and and our youngest son to McDonald's. Um, But the whole idea of apocalyptic literature is that we should be reading it. We should be looking at the times around us and prayerfully asking ourselves, are we in the midst of this? To, for the purpose of, of looking to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the midst of these circumstances. It's not a bad thing to pray, Lord, please. Please don't have it be as terrible as it could be. And then we move to the final example. This is in 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
In the moments leading up to Jesus' betrayal by Judas Iscariot, and Judas um, uh, Iscariot is Ishkariot. Ish is a man, and then it gives the place of Kariot. And so he's, he's a, a guy from a particular place that people would have known. He was one of the 12. He's, he's among Jesus' inner circle. But in the moments leading up to, to Jesus' betrayal by Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles, prayer becomes the central focus in the Gospel of Matthew, bringing, being mentioned no less than five times in, the section of these ver- or in this group of verses. After having warned his disciples that they would be scattered on this night because of what was going to happen to him, Jesus took his disciples to the place, uh, place of Gethsemane, that is the oil press, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus commanded most of his disciples to remain there in that particular place, but he, put, he took Peter, James, and John. And these guys, as we look in the book of Acts, they seem to have a uh, uh, kind of an even more inner circle role with Jesus, along with him a little further away to pray. In this moment, Jesus was overwhelmed with sadness and distress. And just remember, Jesus knows what's happening and what does he do? He turns to prayer. He knows what is going to happen and he turns to prayer. Knowing what was about to unfold and commanded the three with him to remain where they were and keep awake with him. The idea would be that they would be praying as well. Having gone a little further, Jesus fell on his knees or fell on his face in deep sadness and distress, praying. His prayer reflects the weight of the situation, in essence, asking if there was any other way to do what needed to be done without the intense suffering that was a, he was about to endure. And yet, just as he had taught his disciples how to pray, he prayed that the Father's will and not his own will would be done. This is a word-for-word quote from the prayer that he taught to his disciples. And this is very important as Matthew is structured and put these things together. And he's showing that in this moment, even the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is praying this prayer to his heavenly Father. He is submitting himself to the will of the Father. When he returned to Peter, James, and John, he found them asleep and directed the collective rebuke to Peter. He singles him out. And he said to Peter, asking why they could not keep awake, with him for even one hour. And again, just as he had taught his disciples to pray, Jesus commands them to keep awake and pray that they would not be led into temptation. The second reference directly back to the prayer that Jesus had given. He's telling them in this moment to pray exactly what he had taught them. They were not strong enough to withstand what was about to come. They needed their heavenly father's help. Jesus went away a second time and prayed yet again to his father, recognizing that there was no other way, ending with the exact words he had taught his disciples to pray, let your will be done. Returning and finding Peter, James, and John asleep for a second time, they just could not keep their eyes open. Jesus went back and prayed a third time in the same way as before, Now prayerfully prepared for what was about to unfold, Jesus returned to the sleeping disciples a third time and rebuked them for their continued sleep. Clearly, the disciples had missed the gravity of the moment as Jesus announced that his time of betrayal had arrived. 
Jesus was so resolute in his father's will being done that he roused his disciples to meet his betrayer with him head on. What Jesus taught about prayer was also something that he lived. This is actually a key issue when we go throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything that he was teaching, he did. Did Jesus really need to be baptized? Did he need to be baptized as a sign of his repentance? No. He, he didn't need to repent of anything, but he does it as an example to us that he was the first of these disciples. Everything that he calls his disciples to do, he does, he lives out. Even in facing the darkest hours, he prayed to his father and ultimately submitted to him, asking for and agreeing to his father's will being done. It is not by accident that these last five, um, that these last five uses of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew all reflect how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Jesus practiced what he preached, and he calls his disciples to do the same generation after generation. As we think about this, the Lord does give us various things to do, and we should be praying that his will would be done even in the midst of our lives. Sometimes the Lord gives us very, very difficult things that we have to walk in. Uh, in 1999, my second daughter was born. A few weeks before she was born, we went in for an ultrasound. We found out that she was breached. Not only did we find out that she was breached, we found out that she had something called polycystic kidney disease. Terrible blow to parents. While we were in the hospital, after she had been, been, been born cesarean, within the, the first evening, she started having seizures. We went straight from our local hospital to the research university, research hospital in Portland, OHSU. And within the next period of time, all sorts of tests, it revealed that she had partial trisomy 13, uh, which is a genetic disorder we were told that 90% of, of those who have what she has are naturally aborted. They don't make it to birth. And of those who would make it past that point, that 90% chance of death within the first year. And we thought to ourselves, wow, what, what is this, Lord? And we were expecting that she was going to die. As the years moved on, she kept, as we prayed, the Lord would do the miraculous. And he just kept delivering her over and over and over. We actually moved from the Netherlands back to the United States because she started having these seizures that would cause cardiac and respiratory arrest. Both my wife and I have done CPR on her multiple times or had done CPR on her multiple times over the years came back to the US, we thought this is gonna be it. I, I didn't wanna bury my daughter in the Netherlands away from family and longtime friends. Trusted the Lord, prayerfully coming back to the United States. In that first year, she, she was within months, she was taken by ambulance to the hospital. We thought she wasn't gonna make it. She had another one of these episodes. And then, un, you know, just out of the blue, she's diagnosed with cancer. Huge tumor on her tongue. They dissected her tongue, took out about a third of her tongue. 
They thought, this is great, the tumor was contained. The report on the biopsy comes back and they said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Sheets, we're so sorry to tell you this, but there was a nerve ending in the middle of this tumor and the fastest way that this particular type of cancer travels is through these nerves. On the day before Thanksgiving, this is in uh, 2016, November of 2016, my wife and I were preparing, we were leading music for a Thanksgiving service the next day. My wife is kind of playing with her hair because she's severely handicapped, severely mentally retarded, uh, cerebral palsy, all of these sorts of things, and she loves singing with us. Playing with her hair, feels her neck, giant lump, out of nowhere in that period of time. We prayed. I got so used to the Lord doing the miraculous. Diagnosed in September, passed away on April 3rd of that next year. Within six months, she was gone. Our daughter, who the Lord had miraculously delivered time and time again, who we give thanks to Him, that we got 18 years and just short of a month with her, and not just one year. The reality is, is we all have these sort of things that we pray for the Lord's will to be done in the midst of our lives. And sometimes the Lord, He makes it very, very clear because a part of His will is, is someone that you are caring for through these most difficult of circumstances. Sometimes it's a church, sometimes it's somebody that we, our children, you know, it's not supposed to, not supposed to go that way, and yet it does at times. But as we come into this, we recognize that we follow a Savior who didn't just teach us about prayer, but He lived it. And He submitted to the will of the Father. And ultimately in that, through the Savior, submitting His will to the Father, He gave His life for us. And we follow Him in His example by being the sort of people who pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.